Today, I can announce that the United States has agreed to formally reestablish diplomatic relations with the Republic of Cuba and reopen embassies in our respective countries. Sirius XM's Urban View presents a special Madison show, USA and Cuba Reconnected. Here's your host, Joe Madison. Hey, it's Madison, the Black Eagle, and welcome to a very special broadcast, USA and Cuba Reconnected, right here on Sirius XM. We're going to talk about why we went to Cuba, the fact that Sherry and I spent nine days touring that country, which is only 90 miles off the shores of the United States. We had a bus tour. We went with a group of journalists, business people, and educators, and we had an opportunity to talk to students, elected officials, public officials, and most important of all, we had an opportunity to broadcast live the first broadcast in 50-plus years from Havana. Before traveling into Cuba, USA Today columnist Dwayne Wickham, who organized our trip, detailed his travels as a journalist to the country some 20 times and having the opportunity to spend time with Fidel Castro at the Palace of the Revolution. The Palace of the Revolution, the Council of States and Ministers, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and the official office of the President of the Republic, Raul Modesto Castro Ruiz, working in the building. Palace of the Revolution kind of reminded me of the Supreme Court in the sense that it has these long steps one must climb. Uh, and the bus took us to the front of the building, deposited us off into the street. We got off, we looked up, and we wondered what next. I mean, there was no security visible, uh, and there was no White House gate, things of that sort. But this huge door opened, and this lone man stepped out and beckoned us up the steps. And we went up the steps, and inside there was like a huge foyer uh, and uh, a counter behind which there were a couple of people who took our, our possessions and gave us little uh, receipts for them. And then we were ushered into a room, a reception room, and moments later, in walked uh, Fidel with two big black security guys. I mean, these guys are all like 6'4 and very well toned. And that was it. And I thought immediately, how many times have I been to the White House? <laughs> <laughs> you don't do this that quickly in the White House. Uh, you can't get that close to the president without going through all kinds of security. But apparently, they, they've got their security down and they figured it out. And so, uh, we uh, were taken into another room where there was a long table. Uh, one might imagine that that's the kind of table you would have when you're having diplomatic wranglings. Mm -hmm. And on one side was, I don't know, a phalanx of Castroites. And on the other side was the delegation. And there we sat for three hours as the president of Cuba talked to us about many things. Um, at the time, he talked about something uh, as maybe trivial today as CNN. Then it was a big deal. 1999, CNN was the worldwide uh, mm -hmm. network of news, almost unchallenged. Uh, and he talked about all kinds of events around the world, which made me uh, see that this guy, while, while shadowed by an embargo that was meant to keep Cuba isolated, had this remarkable knowledge of the world beyond Cuba. And then 
uh, after a, a period of three hours or so, they took us into yet another room where we were to have dinner. And there was another, there was another long table. And at this long table, as it turned out, they sat me next to Maxine Waters and the president of Cuba across from the two of us. And so the entire time we were looking at him and he was speaking, I felt as though he was speaking directly to me. <laughs> I couldn't keep my eyes on him because behind him there was a pit, Alberto, where they were roasting a pig. <laughs> and the pig had been split open <laughs> and the snout <laughs> and the eyes were looking right at me. <laughs> and I said... I'm not eating, eating any of that pig. I've not had any pig before roasted on an open pit. I'm not going to That pig was so good. <laughs> the skin was like crackling. And I guess that's what crackling is. <laughs> the food was fantastic. They had pig. They had mashed potatoes. Now, you know, communists. Come on. What happened to the revolution? They were serving mashed potatoes. He had, he had roast pork. Mashed potatoes, um, endless supply of lobster tail. By the way, Cuba today is the world's uh, largest supplier of lobster to Japan. Who knew? Lobster, pork, mashed potatoes. Um, <clears throat> there were some vegetables of some type. I'm not sure what they were. Uh, and seated next to me... Uh, I won't mention his Biden. There was a member of the caucus, uh, a male member of the caucus, who um, was taken aback by the fact that they brought out after the meal uh, cigars. And they pushed out a rack of liquor, much of a Cuban, but there were also, you know, some American or Canadian liquor. But we weren't supposed to drink that. You know, good taste would call for you to ask for the Cuban rum. So they served us rum. Uh, and they brought out the cigars, and this member, and they, they, they came around with the sick boxes. There were three men with boxes, one behind the other, and they would put it in front of you. You take a cigar or two, and you put it in front of you. And this one member of Congress reached up and grabbed a handful <laughs> from one box, then he grabbed a handful from the second box, and he grabbed a handful from the third box. Now he has cigars rolling across the table in front of him, right? And realized. He needed somehow a way to carry them out. So he leaned over to the gentleman who was then Fidel Castro's, uh, I guess, personal assistant. Uh, he later became the foreign minister. And he said, uh, can we get a box? And so the guy turns and he says something in Spanish to someone. And he, the guy goes off and comes back and he's pushing a rack you know, like the rack that you see bread when the bread man comes to the grocery store and he pushes a rack of bread and wow. bread on everybody. He has a rack of boxes of cigars. This guy wanted a box to put his his his, his loose cigars, but in the translation, they brought boxes of cigars. And so now he's really in hog heaven, I guess a cigar heaven, and he he gets his a couple boxes of cigars. We all go back with boxes of cigars. And the next morning, uh, Maxine Waters calls us all in to breakfast and she says, um, you cannot take the cigars home. There's an embargo. Uh, you cannot take any cigars home with you. 
Uh, and I'm going to ask you to do the right thing and turn the cigars over to me, and I will in turn take the cigars to the embassy, where, of course, the Americans will smoke all the cigars. <laughs> and so... And so many of the people in the group, there were, like, there were six members of the caucus, there were eight of us, uh, a majority of the people in the group turned over their cigars, and the congresswoman took the cigars, boxes of cigars, over to the U.S. Embassy. But this one guy, whose name will go unmentioned, he kept his stash of loose cigars and his two boxes of cigars. Uh, and as a member of Congress, he went through customs and nobody asked him anything. Wow. And he got his cigars in. This is a long way of saying to you about cigars. You cannot bring cigars back into the U.S. Uh, with the exception now that you can bring uh, up to $100 worth of cigars. I tell everyone when, I, when they go, do not try to bring cigars back into the U.S. You cannot do it. It's illegal. Okay. <laughs> uh, by the way, also, if you can find a box of cigars worth less than $100, uh, if you buy them, make sure you get a receipt. Because when you go through Cuban customs on your way out and they see that you have a box of cigars, they want to make sure you pay for them because there's a black market in cigars in Cuba that they're trying to discourage. And so they want to see that you have a receipt from a legitimate vendor of cigars and not something you got on the street because the cigars you get on the street you can buy in the Bahamas and in Jamaica from the stores and they all tell you they're real Cuban cigars and they're not. You know, they'll look like them but they're not because those guys go over and they buy duffel bag full of cigars and they get them off the black market. So, um, I just wanted to share that with you about cigars. Um, and having said all that, I want to start passing out some travel documents. What I learned from this trip that I that I just just floored me. I didn't really think it would be a debate or an issue. Was this the debate on the issue of race? Uh, the the government uh, will acknowledge. Oh yes, we have a racial problem, but it's cultural. Uh, and they insisted that there's no such thing as an Afro-Cuban, even though Afro-Cubans insist they exist. Uh, we we uh, we we had we learned that uh, uh, African American heroes like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King are well regarded. Matter of fact, we visited a, a, a memorial to uh, Martin Luther King on one side of this granite um, monument and on the opposite side was a, a, a recognition of Malcolm X on this small unfortunately well unkept park that I hope one day somebody will will go in and and clean it up and and bring it up to to speed During our time in Cuba, we visited the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial and, by the way, a church, Ebenezer Baptist Church. There I interviewed curator Daisy Rojas Gomez, where she discussed Martin Luther King Jr., racism and sexism in the Cuban media. 500 years, 
And you could not erase this issue from the minds of the people in just 50 years. It's to accomplish in just 50 years to get rid of that to a social level. Ingenuity, we make sometimes jokes and we can find a discrimination against women or a pejorative expression towards any gay, homosexual, or lesbian. From my point of view of our Christian faith, we cannot allow that. We also spot these things in the media. I don't think that there is racism in the media in Cuba, but what I understand is that there are racial or racist expressions in the way that people talk in Cuba. For example, if a black person says, I'm going to marry the white person to improve the race, that is a racist institution. When someone said, a black person said, I have a bad hair, or I have, you know, rough complexion, this is a racist discrimination. And sometimes it's the same black person that are using those expressions. So we have to still, you have curly hair, no bad hair. So we need to find out to spot the self-discrimination that exists. Let me let me bring up something we all saw yesterday. algo in 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 the uh, pier. I've never seen so many negative images of black people in my life. Where was that? In the in the the, the, the art, the extravagant lips. Ayer estuvimos en La Habana Vieja y nunca había visto tantas expresiones de discriminación racial en mucho del arte que vimos. And when we were in, when we were in the marketplace, these are in, in in the United States. This would be considered extremely derogatory. Esto sería considerado muy derogativo, derogativo en los Estados Unidos. So how do you address that? Because it's part of. It seems to be a a part of the culture. Parece que parte de la cultura aquí. Yo le voy a explicar algo que yo. I will explain something to you that I perceive from this reality. Caricature art exaggerates the person's complexion to make art. If I have stiff ears, they would put uh, bigger ears in my case. Black women have thick lips. They have the back rear pronounced. So they exaggerate that in the caricatures. It could look grotesque. But it's exaggerated even in the white caricatures. They are expressing their characteristics, not the defaults. Nowadays, uh, white women they inject Botox to get bigger lips. <laughs> they wear silicone to look like black women. It looks like uh, beauty patterns are changing. 
La mujer estilizada, flaquita. Before that, what it used to be really beautiful were the skinny white women. Not now. I don't want to say that it's not a racist artist in Cuba. I'm not trying to tell you that. It could not be the case that any foreign company trying to employ Cuban personnel take a look at the forms and if they are blacks, they are not employed. They are not going to say that they are not employed in black person. They will say that the educational level is lower. Because officially, we do not have racial discrimination in Cuba. When black Cubans get angry, while the robber in a TV show is black, and the beautiful women, the good girl that looks like an angel, She's blonde. Then we protest in that case. We say, why? We have white guys who are robbers as well. That could be present in the Cuban media. I was part of a jury to choose, uh, to select uh, a play for Christmas. Several churches presented their proposals. One church and the demos were presented by black men. And the angels with white with buckles. I disqualified the play. I disagreed with that. I met with the direction of that work. So why? Why did you did not portray uh, black angels? I know lots of them. <laughs> Not even the actors felt themselves offended or discriminated against. But we have to let them be able to visualize. That's a way to make you inferior. And you have to know that. That is what the, the work of the center is focused on. We share with a lot of the community Martin Luther King philosophy and non-violence. Many places in Kiev, in the provinces, in the Isle of Youth, they didn't know, know anything about Martin Luther King or what he thought about. So there we had to handle different ways of conflicts. And once again, I have a dream speech was there. He got angry not just because the racial discrimination, but also the discrimination against the poor people. He was against the war in Vietnam. That took his life. Because he opposed the regime. He opposed the big power. Martin Luther King is an example for us in many ways. Doors are open in Cuba for any person to get into university no, not taking into account the color, the religion, sex, religion. As Martin Luther King Center, as a Cuban institution, we need to find out to see why the number of black students is shrinking at the universities in Cuba. Some people say that to pass the examinations to get into university that are currently very tough ones, you have to have private tutors. 
and most of the black families, they don't have access to remittances coming from abroad. Because the, most of the people that have abandoned Cuba have not been the black ones, have been the white. So the white people living abroad are the ones in the condition of sending money to the white relatives who live in Cuba. Not all the black persons are the ones that have an easier access to working tourist sector. So no hard currency is available for all of them. We have to make a research of that and we have to confront those situations. We need to find a ways of finding solutions. So we need to find out why most of the inmates in the Cuban prisons are blacks. We might find some situation in that case that have not been confronted from the community level or the government on level. It could be the lack of motivation, lack of motivation for studies that we are scared of. And it's not a priority just for the black people. Those who work in the tourism are receiving remittances, they have a better standard of living. Even if salaries are being raised, especially for professional people, the healthcare, education workers, but it's not enough yet. We have to talk to our children, we have to talk to the youngsters in this center. You have to think in a more positive way how you contribute to the future and to the society. Todos somos americanos. Change is hard in our own lives and in the lives of nations. And change is even harder when we carry the heavy weight of history on our shoulders. But today we are making these changes because it is the right thing to do. Today America chooses to cut loose the shackles of the past so as to reach for a better future for the Cuban people, for the American people, for our entire hemisphere, and for the world. Everything in life has advantages and disadvantages. We have fought, we have hoped, and waited for this easing of the relations. This work that we're doing, like talking to persons like you, like having delegations of students from the United States, for you to know the Cuban reality, for you to be able to accept the Cuban reality was aimed to the easing. December 17th was a successful day. We, had, we made a big party here because we put our little grains of sand. We have fought for so many years against the U.S. blockade, which is unfair. It limits our development. But I'm a little bit afraid of having all of a sudden opening and we're not totally ready for that. Our Cuban young people are well-trained, well-formed to face the challenge from the cultural point of view. Our future could not be just thanks to the easing of the relations between our two countries. We need to think about the development of our economy, the defense of our identity, And the coming year, there will be an increase in the relations between Cuba and the United States. I'm just telling you about this Martin Luther King Center, which has a small word, but I'm talking about Cuba as a whole country. And we have three boats, three ferries, planes. Do we have the logistics in Havana City to satisfy the demands of those tourists? I don't know. We have challenges ahead of us.
So the government had to work harder in order to satisfy those demands. As well as as a center, we had to rethink a wider spectrum of work. We have, I have, or we have. We have. Tenemos. We have, we have had many dreams. One of the dreams was this center. As a person, as a Cuban, as an inhabitant of this world, we got more local or material dreams, but there are many dreams. We had a major discussion, debate with several Afro-Cuban intellectuals. And one of the themes that kept coming up was whether or not there was racism in uh, Cuba. Well, we, a couple of things developed. One, Cubans admit, yeah, there's racism, but it's, uh, it's cultural. The government does not tolerate racism, uh, but it does exist. And then we got into this discussion of how people were identified. And we often heard the fact that uh, there were no Afro-Cubans. Everybody in the Marxist, communist system are just Cubans. No distinction. But I remember in one of the exchanges we had with one of the leading Afro-Cubans who we met with, I said, you've got 65.8% of able-bodied Afro-Cubans who are unemployed. In 2009, 70% of uh, Afro-Cubans were estimated to be unemployed. Uh, there was this skyrocketing unemployment of blacks that led to an increased black market in, inside of Cuba, along with other criminal activities resulting in um, Afro-Cubans uh, being arrested. Uh, matter of fact, 85% Afro-Cubans between the ages of 18 and 28 make up the prison population. How is it that you can say there are no Afro-Cubans and that everybody is, is Cuban? If you have a problem, how do you address the problem that I just defined that was part of your, your very study? We got an interesting response. What I'm not hearing is I've, we've had official after official, there is no Afro-Cuban, there is no black Cuban. Uh -huh. So therefore, if there is no identity, how do you know if you're making progress if people aren't identified as the people they are. I mean, your, your officials are saying they're, they're, just, we, they're all just Cubans. So then how do, you make, how do you measure progress if no one identifies themselves as an Afro-Cuban or African-Cuban? Matter of fact, we've been told straight up there's no such thing as an Afro-Cuban. The answer came from Cuban journalist, author, and researcher Gisela Arandia. The, the problem is not only in the government. We have the problem, too, in the society, and we have the problem even the black society, even the black community. 
And there are the problem, of course, according the Cuban society, 50 years, there are no public speech. This is the very important problem. We never told about what happened in the racism. There are not the projects. The government prepared the very important program for the women, for the homosexuals, for the disability, for the birds, for the dog, for the many things. That's why the dog was watching us. So, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're in the small home of this uh, Afro-Cuban intellectual. There are about 17 of us. And I just happened to look out a side window and I saw the largest German shepherd that I've ever seen. Looked almost like a wolf. It was only like 10 feet from me, peering over a fence and like looking at the group that was in the home because he the dog could see through the, the window, but sort of staring at us like, who are you guys? <laughs> and we don't have the project about the black identity, about the black community. And this is the problem. I consider it. The black community, we are responsible also. We are responsible yeah. because we don't prepare the speech for the man. There are one, two years, I was in Washington. I was the opportunity to the, the talk with the uh, important Congress, Eleonora. Mm -hmm. is, is the congressista for Washington DC? And she told me, te voy a pedir que me, tú me, lo, me, tra, me traduzcan la frase. Una sociedad que no tiene demandas. No va a recibir. It's not going to receive. No va a recibir beneficios. Entonces, this is the problem. We have the, the, the classical problem. El huevo o la gallina. The classical problem, the hand or the egg, which came first. This is a special presentation of The Madison Show on Sirius XM's Urban View. USA and Cuba reconnected. Here's your host, Joe Madison. When the embargo started, Cuba turned to the Soviet Union for financial support. And that's where they got most of their support from financially. That's where they did their trade with, with other countries, China, the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, then, then when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, a lot of advancement was suspended. Uh, so you have an infrastructure that needs tremendous repair. Let me tell you, if you, if, if, if I would say anything about people who might start going to Cuba as tourists, you're going to have difficulty uh, just walking on the sidewalks because uh, the sidewalks are in terrible shape, primarily because there's only so much money, and obviously what they're going to try to spend their money on, prioritize their money on, is roads, because roads bring about what? Commerce. 
a lot of cobblestone streets. You go to Old Havana. Old Havana is, is for all practical purposes, a tourist uh, destination. So you got a lot of small shops, people selling the things that they sell, whether it's in any Caribbean city, T-shirts, you know, uh, artifacts, uh, that type of thing. I suspect most of it's probably made in the Philippines or China. <laughs> you know, I don't even think it's, a lot of it's authentic, although you will find uh, some stores or some uh, businesses where there are, are some authentic Cuban art. But you really have to be very, very careful. We were told the number one export uh, that they're going to gain from uh, reconnecting with the United States, I thought would have been tourism, brain power. They export brain power, doctors, even athletic coaches. Give me, give me an example. Let's say an oil-rich country in the Middle East. They, they, will, they will pay the government of Cuba to have their athletic coaches come in and train soccer players, boxers, whatever the, the sport might be. Um, and, and that's how the, that's, and, and so in medicine, uh, that's, that's, that's going to be their number one export to the world is going to be brain power. Number two will be tourism. Yeah, we practice a lot of different sports, but mainly the one that give us most of our Olympic medals, boxing. A lot of Cubans like me were very much concerned what happened if we finally normalize relations with the United States. How many Cuban ball players are going to be playing in Cuba? Most people don't know this, but Cuban medical schools, at least the one we featured in our visit, provides 250 fully paid scholarships. That's room, board, tuition, everything for a seven-year medical school for any African-American or Hispanic student. Were we surprised when we met two medical students in Cuba from the United States? Joshua Johnson, who was from Indianapolis, Indiana, and Hajima Weathers, who was, by the way, from Newark, New Jersey. Both medical students at the Latin American School of Medical Sciences, we discussed their experience in Cuba, why they chose to study in Cuba, and what they hope to do after medical school. All right, for the record, your name and where you're from. Hello, my name is Ajewa Weathers, and I'm from Newark, New Jersey. And how long have you been in the Cuban medical uh, school? This is my second year here, and I'm a first-year medical school student. Explain how that works, your, your first year here, uh, and, and then what is your second year how does it differ okay so the first year is your pre-med year you haven't started medical school yet you're learning spanish and then you're also taking basic science classes in spanish that includes biology chemistry organic chemistry physics some history classes and just other classes to prepare you for studying in spanish that is what is um, composed of your first year. Now, is that an immersion type program? Yes, all the students have to take it. Before, the Americans did not have to take that year, but um, now it's mandatory for all students that enter to take that year. 
And and um, and then now your second year is how does that differ? What is now happening in your second year? Okay, so this is my second year here in Cuba, and I'm officially a first year medical school student. And so now I've begun taking my medical school courses, which include the morphos, which are a combination of biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, and anatomy. I don't think I said that. And then um, you, we also take MAE, which is promotion. It's a um, like a, a general health class, a general medicine class. They teach you how to do physical diagnosis. They teach you how to talk with patients and how to interview patients. And all of this is in Spanish. All of it is in Spanish. Our conferences, our lectures are in Spanish, and so are our exams, all in Spanish. We heard that uh, medical students also have to work in the community. They they have to uh, work what in clinics in the community. That is part of the curriculum, part of the, the, the training? Yes. Every other week, we go out to the clinics that we're assigned to and observe other physicians and also practice our physical diagnosis skills that we learned in our class. That was the class I was telling you about. It's called um, MAE, and it's um, Integration Medicine, Integrative Medicine. And, and um, um, what, what, what neighborhood or, or, or province are you, are, uh, are you assigned to? My province is La Lisa. It's about 15 minutes away from the school, and they have buses that take you to your location. And how long do you stay there? Do you work a day? Do you work a week? Do you, do you, are you, do you commute back and forth from the campus to the, your location? Yes, we go every other week. We go for one day from about 8 until about 12 in the afternoon. Other than that, you can visit if you have time. And they also require you to do additional visits on the weekends, which they call guardia. And that's when you go to, like, the emergency room and shadow as opposed to going to a clinic. But that, you, you only have to do about two or three of those for the semester. Every other week, you uh, go to your clinic. Why did you choose uh, the, the, the Cuban Medical School? Well, I was introduced to Cuban doctors when I went to Ghana. I was doing a rotation in the hematology department in one of their teaching hospitals and met a lot of Guyanians who came to Cuba and studied and practiced and, and practiced medicine. So through them, I was able to find the program that allows U.S. medical school students to go to Cuba and study medicine. And everyone that I spoke to, all the physicians I asked about Cuban doctors and how is medicine in Cuba, gave me really, really good um, like good perspectives, they say they always see Cuban doctors. They go all over the world. They send out a lot of brigades, and they help to take care of a lot of people during natural disasters and things of that nature, and that they've been training doctors here for the longest. I'm not sure exactly how long, but um, they've been training doctors worldwide for a very, very long time. So I'm and, um, and what is your ultimate goal? You have, what, five more years? So what is your ultimate goal? My ultimate goal is to return back to my hometown and practice medicine. This is Newark. Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Newark, New Jersey, and wherever else I'm needed. Um, I feel like my training gives me the ability to go to a lot of different places. And um, also, I, have, I feel like once I'm done with this program, I'll have really good physical diagnosis skills, which means I won't need as much technology. So I, I feel confident going to, back to the city, 
where there's limited resources or to other countries where there also might be limited resources. You know, that was brought out in the uh, lecture that we we, we had uh, also in Spanish, but with an interpreter, but, but we, uh, that there's this uh, de-emphasis on medical, expensive medical equipment, like MRIs and CAT scans and 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 equipment like that is it, 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 it sort of explain how that is taught uh, and and what is the advantage? Well, in Cuba they do have some of these machines, but not a lot of them. So a lot of the doctors are trained to work and to diagnose without them. So, for instance, instead of being able to visualize a bleed that may be in the brain, they're taught to know the symptoms that the patient will present with to allow them to know that something like that is occurring. And I think for us as students, it's the best way to learn because if something happens to those machines, we have to know what to do. And I also think learning through that way also is is better for us because we'll remember it more as opposed to just looking at lab numbers or looking at a figure. And finally, anyone you want to give a shout out to back home in, in Newark, New Jersey, this is the time. Uh, I would just like to say hi to all of my family, um, my mom, Teresa, my sister and brother, Nana and Tutu, and my best friend whose parents always listen to XM. This is XM. Radio, uh, Gladisha Francis and Violet, and yeah. We, we are lucky. We have found two students who, who are serious XM, you know, <laughs> listeners. What the, yeah. the, just, the, just the thought of going, you know, to be in Havana, and, and, and so it's a pleasure uh, meeting you. It was nice meeting you all, so thank you. The record, let me get your, uh, you do listen to Sirius? I, I did before I left here, I had a subscription. Oh, great. Uh, let me get your name, where you're from, just for the record initially. Okay. Uh, my name is Joshua Johnson, uh, born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. And let me ask you, how long have you been in, uh, here in Havana in medical school? Uh, I arrived here in August of 2014, and... I came here with a class of 10 of us. We are considered pre-med, so this is the first initial year of the program. And where were uh, most of the 10 students from? Different parts of the United States, uh, various cities and states? Uh, from all over. Uh, there were a handful from California, uh, some from Philadelphia, um, some from the East Coast, so Jersey. Um, but the majority of us were from New York, and there were two of us that were from the Midwest, one from Milwaukee, myself from Indianapolis. And, and uh, your, your expertise or what you hope to accomplish, your specialty uh, initially is, is what? Coming in, my specialty was uh, what I wanted to go into was orthopedic surgery, uh, sports medicine. And, and so where are you now in this? This is your first year? This is still technically my pre-medical year. So the pre-medical year is when you come in and you learn Spanish. From the time we start in September up until, well, all of the curriculum is taught in Spanish. So when you come in in September, you're not required to know Spanish. So they start you off learning Spanish. The first semester from September up through January is all learning Spanish, the language. And then from February up until June, you take the pre-medical sciences, so your chemistry, physics, biology, 
math, um, all of that stuff is taught in Spanish. So you're getting a review of what you learn or should have learned in undergraduate. Where did you go to undergraduate school? I went to, um, did my undergraduate studies at Wabash College in Indiana. And in terms of adjusting, what's been your biggest adjustment to, to make since you've been here? As a loaded question. Um, definitely language. I mean, I was a, a Spanish major undergrad at Wabash, so that helped with the transition. Um, but it's still the, the Spanish that they speak here is very different from any Spanish that I've heard anywhere else in the world. And I've been to Spain, I've been to Ecuador, I've been to Guatemala. Um, but it's very different. Outside of that, uh, communication is, has also been huge just because um, it's hard to get access to the Internet as we're accustomed to in the States. And you actually have to pay $5 an hour to use the Internet here. So communication was, was hard. You don't really have um, Facebook or, or any of those things that we're used to or so accustomed to having back at home. Uh, it's, it's hard to, to get access to. And then when you do have the Internet, it's not as reliable as it used to as well. And, and let me ask about the, the relationship with students and going to school. Obviously a lot different than Wabash, right? Uh, uh, with going to school with medical school, with so many students from different parts of, uh, of the world, of, uh, what, what is that like? Uh, it's a blessing. It's, it's truly a blessing because... This is, without a doubt, the most diverse international medical school, period, to date. Um, we have, there are over 100 countries represented here. Uh, I know in my room, I sleep with students, a room with students from um, Swaziland, a country in Africa, Ethiopia, uh, Niger, um, and then you have some from the States as well, the Bahamas. Um, on a daily basis, I hear five different languages. I hear Portuguese various African dialects, Spanish, uh, Arabic, French, Mandarin, all of these different things I'm hearing on a daily basis. You know, I came here thinking that I'm just going to perfect my Spanish and know Spanish coming back home, but why stop there? I know I, I plan on learning Portuguese and French and, and, if I can, Arabic as well. So just all these things that I didn't even think about didn't even come to my mind, but I'm, I'm learning and being exposed to different things, not only... Um, the culture of Cuba and the Spanish language, but what it's like to live in various parts of the world. So what would you say to, to uh, uh, young people listening or parents and uh, maybe who are interested in a medical career? Uh, what would be your advice as it relates to getting a, 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 an education, a medical education here in uh, Cuba? Hands down, you are going to get one of the, if not the best, one of the best educations, bar none. Um, just from the way that you are trained, they teach us here to, to think on a biopsychosocial level. So when it comes to human beings, you have the biology, the psychology, and then the social aspect of all of those things interact and form a part of the health. So in order for you to treat the, the patient as a whole, you have to understand those three aspects. Um, but here in Cuba, they... they really take the time to understand a patient, to understand what they're going through, uh, to identify with the patient, build a relationship. And once you understand that, the doors will start to open. Once that relationship is formed and solidified, doors will open, they'll feel more comfortable, and you can then begin to diagnose them and treat the whole problem, not just the symptoms that they present. And how long will you have to, uh, two, two final questions, how long will you have to study here before you get your medical degree? Uh, the program is a seven-year program, uh, so the pre-medical year and then six years after that. Um, and then we are still, as American students, if we want to practice in the United States, we still have, are required to take the STEP exam, the UM, US 
MLE exams as well. So over the summers, we'll go back and take those uh, after various years. Um, so, yeah, seven years. And so do they help you here in, at the medical school pass those exams uh, in the sense that they know you have to go back? Obviously, they want you to be successful. Is there some curriculum in which uh, they help you with being able to pass those exams? Here at Elam, there are two campuses. There's one here at Elam, and then there's another one after third year we go somewhere else. But here at Elam, the Americans have two special classes that we take. It uh, One is a pharmacology class, and I'm forgetting the other class as of now. But we also have our upper years have passed down information, and we've pretty much gotten into the process that after second year, we're going to take the first step back in the state. So during our first year, we take the curriculum that we have here, the biochemistry, and we look at what is being taught in the United States, and we compare the two. And whatever we're not getting, we supplement with Kaplan videos, supplement with various study materials from the United States, and we form our own study groups, and we study that way. And then over the summer, uh, we drill some more whenever we can, and then by that time, we should be prepared enough to to be ready to take step one. Final question, and that is uh, your goal, your ultimate goal. Once you have finished your seven-year program, you've got your medical degree, you've passed your exams, what is your ultimate goal? Without a doubt, I, I can't speak to what I will be, but I can tell you this. My goal is to to be a doctor that can can bridge, ha, I have a global vision and just take what I've learned here in Cuba back to Indianapolis and make that a better community. Um, it's given me so much. And so I know what I've learned here and just the way I, my mentally I've changed. I hope to take that back to Indianapolis and then the states in general and just help to change the culture and the aspect of medicine, um, especially for African-Americans and Latinos, because we are underrepresented in medicine in Indianapolis, but in the United States as a whole. And with what I've learned here, I hope to take those skill set back to the states and back to Indianapolis and, and help to uplift those communities. And for the record, once again, your name and where you're from, anybody want to say hello to back home? Yes. Uh, once again, my name is Joshua Johnson, uh, born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. I would love to give a big shout out to uh, my church, New Life Worship Center back at home. Um, my family, I love you all. Thank you for the support. Uh, Wabash College, the Indianapolis Public School System, and of course, um, the Black and Old Gold Alpha Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, onward and upward. Alphas will love that. The president of the Latin American School of Medical Science, Rafael Ponce de Leon, joined me to discuss students and the study abroad program that is available. There are some 2,000 medical students from Africa that are studying medicine in Cuba. Everybody knows him by his second last name. You do whatever you, whatever you. Is that a common name? Well, hold on a second now. While you, while, no, while we're talking, this is good, this is good radio. Now, now, what were you asking? Ask him to say his name first. Yeah, uh, his, uh, his name. name for the record. And, you know. Rafael González Ponce de León. Ponce de León. And everybody knows him by his last name, Ponce, second last name. Ponce de León. So the question is, are you related to the explorer? He can trace it back. Maybe. Maybe. All right, maybe. How long, how long uh, have you been president of the university? And before that, 
he was the dean of the Julio Trigo School of Medicine to the south uh, east of the city. And this uh, program that was in charge of the training of Latin American students, medical students, and also the Chinese students that are learning medicine here in Cuba. He was in charge of that. We, uh, our, our station is uh, primarily broadcast to African-Americans. And one of the questions was uh, about uh, historically relationship with historically black colleges. Would there be, would, would there be interest in establishing a relationship with historically black colleges. In the academic world, relations between different universities all around the world are part of the normal relations, international relations of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Higher Education, and then in this case, the Ministry of Public Health. Uh, one question has to do with quotas. With so many countries, that you reach out to and recruit. Um, do you have a quota for each country? No, no, analysis, analysis done by the Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs regarding the programs of cooperation that Cuba has with different countries around the world. So it goes through this channel of uh, information, relations, bilateral relations, and as part of the whole bilateral relations. A final question, and your, it would be a personal one. Your personal response when you heard of President Obama uh, uh, wanting to reestablish relationships. What was your reaction when things were done exactly at the same time, at the same hour? The two presidents made their statements. We heard our president, when he made the statement, announcing what was going on, and at the same time, he announced that the three Cuban heroes that had stayed in prison for 16 years in the USA had uh, returned. So this, this he heard, as almost every Cuban did, exactly the same. This was a great joy for the Cuban people when we heard that the talks between the two nations were going to start. This was a, a, something that was of a great joy for the Cuban people when we heard about this. And I should point out, 67, 70% of the American people think it's about time. The history of the relations between the two countries have been people-to-people relations, long-standing for many years, that had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the policies imposed against Cuba by the U.S. administrations. All the isolationist policies against Cuba have failed completely. So it was very interesting to see when, when the... Announcements were made on both capitals by the two presidents that essentially something was beginning in a very positive direction. And this led especially to the characteristic of the understanding that things will be turning, taking a turn for the better. USA and Cuba reconnected, a Madison Show special. You can listen to yours truly, Madison, the Black Eagle, live every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.